This podcast is part of the Paris Fintech Forum Communities Programme and is brought to you with the support of BPI France. You're listening to the Fintech Podcast, the show that goes deep into the stories, the successes and failures that went into creating some of the world's most fantastic fintechs. I'm Elliot Gottkin, and in this episode, how Radko Albrecht's failure to become an Olympic figure skater helped him go on to found Bitbond, which helps banks and intermediaries issue and securitize bonds using blockchain technology and tokenization. Being very dedicated to sports uh, requires a lot of discipline, um, requires you to deal with a lot of setbacks, and uh, requires you to always stand up and you know get back to what you're doing. And I would say this very well also describes the um, the environment that you are in as an entrepreneur, where you know it's not just always going uh, up and to the right, but you also have to deal with setbacks, and not every single day everything goes exactly the way you plan it. And so I think you know being a sports person uh, is actually a very good preparation for becoming an entrepreneur later on in life. Bradko Albrecht, co-founder and CEO of Bitbond. Thanks so much for joining me on the FNTech podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, you're a bank, but one that's got blockchain technology and tokenization at its core. Tell me more. Yeah, so at Bitbond, we serve banks primarily. We serve banks with a product that we call the Bitbond Token Manager. It allows banks to manage the entire lifecycle of tokens, Uh, primarily security tokens that represent the ownership in bonds and stocks and funds and and other financial assets. And banks can use our software in order to manage the lifecycle of these tokens and issue them and disburse them into custody solutions, which is the other uh, thing that we do. We uh, set up banks with digital asset custody infrastructure. And in the course of that, we also consult banks, help them to prepare concepts for technological transformation to go from traditional asset settlement into a tokenized world. Okay, and how's it all going? Yeah, that's uh, going fantastic. Uh, There have been a lot of uh, changes that all fostered uh, tokenization over the past years. Um, In 2019, we as Bitbond have been the issuer of the first truly tokenized security in the European market. Um, A lot of companies before us have tried to tokenize securities under the existing regulatory regime. Um, And we were the first ones who have done that successfully. Uh, We um, issued a tokenized bond with a prospectus that was approved by the German financial regulator Bafin. Um, And since then, a lot of banks and financial intermediaries have approached us whether we would provide them with our tokenization technology, with our tokenization expertise. And there have been a lot of advancements regulatory-wise. Pilot regime on EU level, um, Electronic Securities Act in Germany, and a few others. And all of these developments really foster the tokenization of financial assets in a great way. Right. So obviously regulators, you need to have them on side in order presumably to do a lot of what you do how easy has that been because you're doing something effectively new maybe it's not 
well understood by a lot of regulators. Um, so, so I'm just wondering how you get the approvals to do what you're doing without falling foul of uh, regulators, as perhaps uh, some companies in the blockchain space uh, have done. Yeah. So, first of all, we provide technology that's neutral to regulations. But then, of course, uh, when the regulatory environment is in place so that banks and issuers can use our technology, it's, of course, tremendously helpful. Um, and there are two, you can divide the market in kind of like two areas. Um, one area is highly regulated. It's the public market where you cater to both institutional and retail investors. And here you have to make sure to always follow the prospectus regulations, the securities trading regulations. And here we, I would say, have a high level of awareness what these regulations are and what our clients can do with our tech and what they cannot do with it. And then there is a second big part of the market, which is unregulated, which is mostly an institutional-only market where um, institutional investors, um, regulated financial institutions such as banks and asset managers deal with each other. And these non-public markets, mostly driven by OTC over-the-counter transactions, um, are so that you can already tokenize more or less everything because no public market regulations apply to these. And so we're, of course, uh, trying to serve our technology for both parts. Um, but the most exciting part is the public one, which is regulated because this is where a lot of the issuance and trading volume is happening. In order to know what's going on there, we have also a team at Bitbond, which is continuously looking at what is happening uh, in the regulatory space. And I think we have a pretty good level of awareness and expertise uh, what the regulations in Europe look like. And the pandemic didn't uh, put a stop to any of these developments, either regulatory or at Bitbond itself? It didn't certainly didn't put a stop to the developments. It might have slowed a few developments down here and there. Um, some of our clients who were planning to invest into digital assets, into tokenization, have postponed their investment decisions. Um, but this is rather a minority than the majority. Um, and certainly over the past six months, things have started to pick up again and are at full speed as it was before the pandemic. And you've talked about some of the developments that have already happened. Uh, what fresh developments should we expect going forward for the rest of this year and, and, and uh, the years ahead? Um, two, two things that I personally um, am excited about uh, uh, that I would like to mention. First of all, I briefly said the German regulator passed what is called the Electronic Securities Act. Um, this allows issuers in the German market to issue dematerialized bonds, um, bearer bonds, which previously always required a paper-based certificate that was deposited with the Central Securities Depository. This Electronic Securities Requirement, uh, uh, Electronic uh, Act, removes the CSD monopoly. And it's very interesting to be seen how banks actually apply um, those legislations. Because so far, um, whenever there was a tokenized transaction in Germany, in Europe, it was done under other regulatory regimes. And nobody has yet taken advantage of the Electronic Securities Act. Um, and of course, when there is new legislation, there is always room how to um, interpret the law. And when first issuers are going to issue 
tokenized securities under this law, then also the regulator will react and we will become, uh, we'll get into a situation where we'll actually understand the law better on a day-to-day basis when we see how it gets applied. So this is one exciting development. And the other exciting development is the pilot regime, which um, defines certain rules on European level, how tokenization can be applied, how tokenized securities can be traded. And this is just the first draft that came out. Um, Currently, different associations and lobby groups are submitting comments to the European Commission, um, whether, you know, the pilot regime, as it was put out, is a good piece of legislation or whether there are some ways to improve it, which there certainly are, as a side note. And it's going to be very exciting to see whether the European Commission is going to actually consider these comments and what's going to happen next to the pilot regime, which hopefully at some point over the next one to two years will become actual law and uh, which um, where the financial services space can uh, um, issue tokenized securities and trade them under this law. And unless I'm mistaken, uh, very shortly, I think the US regulators are are due to approve the first, I think, synthetic um, Bitcoin uh, ETFs. Uh, if I was reading correctly. Um, do, do you get a sense that the US regulator is behind or just more wary or, or are people just more fearful of the US regulator if they uh, if they do something wrong in this space? So I'm, I'm, I'm not a particular expert on US um, crypto and securities regulation. The things that I do observe and that seem to be the case are that there is of course different regulatory and supervisory bodies in the US Um, you have the SEC you have FinCEN and uh, a a number of other organizations and on top of that in the United States the individual states have more room to set financial regulation uh, then we would be used uh, to see that in European countries. Even though many of the European countries also are organized in a federal way, Germany uh, probably being the biggest example, financial regulation is centralized, plus there is an EU level, which normally then harmonizes most of the aspects about capital markets and financial regulations. And in the US, um what federal bodies say is not always the same and what federal legislators say is not always the same than what the different state legislators do. Um, And this is something that causes confusion uh, and at the least causes friction when you look at how Coinbase and other fintechs need to apply for licenses on a state-by-state basis. And uh, yeah, the ETF, to come back to your example, is something that has been long anticipated in the U.S., um, and that, you know, where a lot of hope was put into an ETF driving a more mainstream adoption of uh, Bitcoin trading. Um, and so I think when that happens, it's going to be a very good thing for the uh, US market and for the Bitcoin market globally as a whole. Um, but I really hope that uh, there will be more regulatory clarity and not contradicting statements between federal um, agencies and state legislators. Okay. 
All right. So we'll come back to your story in just a minute, Radko, because I want to find out more about you and how you got to where you were. But I just need to remind our listeners that this podcast is part of the Paris Fintech Forum Communities Programme for 2021. And in this special pandemic period, you can enjoy throughout the year top-level live sessions with key industry players, exclusive on-demand interviews such as this one, and use our innovative digital networking capabilities to meet your peers, develop your network, create new business opportunities, and continue to build together the future of the fin and tech industry. And you can find out more at www.parisfintechforum.com. So, um, Radko, uh, Bitboin, Bitbond, I should say, uh, how did you how did you get here? What what led you to uh, to set up this company in the first place? It's it's a bit of a longer story. <laughs> I um, I was always interested in financial services. I started my career at the Deutsche Bank in London in sales and trading of structured products. After that, I worked as a management consultant, um, also primarily on banking-related projects. Um, but I always knew I wanted to start my own business at some point. And um, I first got excited about online lending. And uh, so when I started Bitbond, um, two things happened. Uh, it used to be an online lending platform for small business working capital loans. Um, however, we did utilize Bitcoin as a method for payment processing from the very beginning. This is also how the name Bitbond came up. Um, I first heard about Bitcoin in the year 2012 when a good friend about, uh, of mine told me about it. Um, and when we started Bitbond, I was looking for an efficient way to conduct cross-border payments, um, which in the traditional banking system is quite expensive and takes pretty long. Um, so that's how Bitbond got started. Um, of course, back then we didn't have so much to do with tokenization. This is an evolution that we went through over the past two to three years when we saw the big ICO wave. Um, we got quite excited about that. And in short, our idea was to bring tokenization um, into the regulated capital markets. Uh, and that's how we had the idea to issue our own tokenized security in the first place. And we were already hoping back then that um, perhaps this is something that might be interesting for the banking market. However, we were not expecting the level of positive feedback and um, positive vibe that we were getting from the industry about our tokenized bond offering. Um, and so we were quite surprised by it and almost overwhelmed at the beginning. But then we saw it as a huge opportunity um, because the online lending model um, was very hard for us to turn into a profitable business. And so when we saw the demand for tokenization and some of the regulatory uh, developments that we just spoke about were also on the horizon and it was kind of foreseeable that tokenization is going to be a growing field, then we started to um, take our expertise and put that into an enterprise-level software for the tokenization of securities. And this field, of course, is still evolving quite um, uh, uh, quite well and, and, and quite fast, and we're very happy to be part of that development. And when you started things off at Bitbond, was it, an e was it an easy sell to investors or to customers? Was it something that just kind of took off naturally, or was it quite a challenge at the beginning? So... Um, Every beginning is hard, I would say. However, we have managed to get to a couple thousand users relatively quickly. Uh, we have managed to raise a seed round with investors relatively quickly. Um, so, of course, it, it was certainly hard work, um, but there was clearly demand both from customers and from investors. When we then decided to change our business model from a lending platform to um, 
a tokenization software provider. We certainly had some arguments within the group of our shareholders, and we were, um, you know, we had to, to a certain degree, um, make clear that there is a good case behind it. Um, but what has driven that decision was the customer demand that we see until today. So that's what's always reassuring us that we have um, um, taken the right direction with the company because the market is clearly there and there's a lot of demand. So this is, I believe, the most important factor that you must see demand in the market. And then it's also easy to convince shareholders to bring new investors on board um, to support you. And so this was an argument among your investors that, that you, let's say, you won. Was it easy to get them on side? Or in the end, it was like a, a vote where some people perhaps uh, didn't get what they wanted and others did? Well, ultimately, it was a consensus decision um, because there were very strong signals that the market is there. Uh, but we certainly were discussing it in the board and uh, with the um, entire uh, group of shareholders. And... In the time, I think it's eight years you've been going now, what's been the biggest challenge for you? That is a good question. Um, probably the biggest challenge is always to find the right people for the team, um, which is probably not very unusual. Um, when I talk to other founders, friends of mine who are working in early-stage tech companies, who are starting early-stage tech companies, then one key aspect is always to find the right people with the right background, with the right expertise, um, and um, find them at the right time. Uh, so, And then forming a team uh, that works uh, together very well um, out of those people that um, you know look like they have the right expertise and the right background. I think overall, this is one of the most challenging, but at the same time, the most rewarding aspect about uh, running an early-stage tech company because um, when you see how people develop in your team, how they start to become more and more productive, how they contribute more, what great ideas um, they have, then, you know, on the one hand, it's hard work because you need to get the right people together. You need to form a culture. But then at the same time, when you see results coming out of that process, it's also the most rewarding thing that you can have as a founder. So I think that was, as I say, eight years ago. Obviously, you, you had a life before that. Uh, you grew up in Germany. Tell me about uh, about growing up in Germany. Yeah, I um, actually was born in Slovakia and we came to Germany when I was four years old. So I don't have a lot of memories to the time before we came to Germany. But I did grow, uh, grow up bilingually in Germany. Um, I uh, spoke Slovak with my parents and then in school and in kindergarten, of course, I spoke German. Um, and uh, it was very interesting times because when we came to Germany, the Iron Curtain was still there. Uh, and then, in, of course, in 1990, uh, all of a sudden the borders opened. We didn't really expect that. So it was very exciting times because then we could travel back to see our family in Slovakia. And yeah, there's a lot of things probably that also um, shaped, you know, how I am as an entrepreneur, how I am as a person. Um, you know, these experiences that looking at it from today are almost historical. But yeah, back then it was just a lot of exciting things happening in the world around uh, me and my family. So so coming from Slovakia to Germany, this was when Slovakia was still, I guess, part of, first of all, it was part of Czechoslovakia. And secondly, it was 
still communists. So you were almost you were refugees in, in into Germany. Yes, so we were leaving Czechoslovakia illegally at that time. Um, we were recognized as uh, as German citizens uh, once we came to Germany because we have German ancestors. But of course, we had to go through a, an elaborate um, administrative process for that. And yeah, we again we left Czechoslovakia illegally, so we knew that uh, while the communist regime was there, we could never go back uh, because my parents would have been sentenced. Right. And what was it your parents did in in Czechoslovakia and, and what is it they ended up doing when they moved to Germany? I, I know sometimes it's uh, it's not always easy to uh, to carry on doing the same thing. That is true. Interestingly, they managed to go into the same um, professions uh, in Germany uh, uh, as what they have been doing in Czechoslovakia. Um, my mom works as a, a coach for ice figure skating and she managed to find uh, a new job in Germany quite easily. Um, and my father uh, was an engineer, and he pretty much continued as an engineer. Uh, the good thing was that my, Germ my, my parents already spoke some German when we came to Germany, so they had a bit of a head start probably compared to other refugees who first had to learn the language and then, um, you know, needed to find a job. And your mother never uh, hoped or encouraged you to become a figure skater? Well, <laughs> I actually used to figure skate uh, until I was 14 uh, years old. Uh, at a high level, were you like kind of, you know, a, a, a potential Olympian or something? Well, on national level in Germany, I think my best uh, result was being third uh, on uh, the German national uh, youth championships in, in ice figure skating. Um, but then at some point, uh, I started to focus more on school and studying and I didn't, you know, invest the time that it would have taken uh, to become like a professional skater. And do you think, you know, I, I'm not, I'm mainly saying this even half in jest, but I mean, presumably some of the skills in, in the sense of the determination and the focus and the single-mindedness that are required to become a sports person, figure skater or, or otherwise at the highest level would also serve you in good stead or stand you in good stead for founding a startup and making making that successful too. Absolutely. I agree 100%. Um, being very dedicated to sports uh, requires a lot of discipline, um, requires you to deal with a lot of setbacks and uh, requires you to always stand up and you know get back to what you're doing. And I would say this very well also describes the um, the environment that you are in as an entrepreneur, where you know it's not just always going uh, up and to the right, but you also have to deal with setbacks, and not every single day everything goes exactly the way you plan it. And so I think you know being a sports person uh, is actually a very good preparation for becoming an entrepreneur later on in life. And, you know, when you're particularly stressed at the office or you've had a really tough fundraising round or something, do you kind of, you know, hit the ice rink to unwind or anything like that? Is that is that like a hobby now? It's it's not really a hobby anymore. I go ice skating maybe once every two years or so. Um, however, I still do a lot of sports. Uh, I go running three or four times a week um, and uh, I take my bicycle uh, to the office and sometimes I go on longer um, bicycle tours on the weekend um, and actually right now I'm planning a um, a Trans-Alp tour which I would like to do next summer um, with my bike crossing the Alps so I'm still you know spending a considerable amount of my free time with sports but it's not so much uh, skating anymore.
<laughs> right. Well, uh, I, I guess your 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 folks must be proud of uh, of your achievements, even if you didn't quite make it to uh, to the Winter Olympics. <laughs> yeah. No. It is, I, I look back uh, to that time with with very good memories. Um, a lot of experiences I've made and uh, friends uh, I've made back at the time. So um, those are uh, extremely valuable experiences. And uh, uh, whether you make it to an Olympian or not uh, is almost a secondary thing in that regard. Okay. Um, that kind of changing. So, so you were so so you grew up and you you studied in German. Then I think age four until age fourteen, you were saying you were you were, you know, at a national level, uh, figure skating. Mm -hmm. And then it was just kind of like, a, a you were, since you were kind of, I guess, ethnic Germans, is that, is that fair to say from, from uh, Czechoslovakia that you were, it was much easier to kind of integrate your parents. It's not like they had to get menial jobs or anything after, after, um, arriving in Germany. And, and I guess from then on it was just a pretty standard uneventful, you know, uh, uh childhood. Well, Hard to say what is an uneventful childhood. Uh, uh, I would say my parents worked their their way up in Germany to to a pretty decent middle class level, which was a big achievement. I would say because when we came to Germany, um, we had no relatives here. Um, my parents had saved up um, two thousand Deutschmarks when we came to Germany, which is round about the equivalent to two thousand dollars today. Um, and that was our starting capital. Um, my parents at that time were around about 30 years old, um, and they pretty much had to, you know, start their careers and everything from scratch again. Um, and I think considering that, uh, it turned out to be very well. Um, uh, I managed to go to university, get a get a degree and all of that, which, yeah, I'm, I'm very thankful for. Um, yeah, so it, it was probably more eventful than the, you know, regular... Um, German family that, uh, you know, where everybody was born here and where you have relatives around you. Um, so, yeah, it was probably not your standard uh, upbringing, but at the same time, you know, for me as a kid, I didn't really see that so much. You know, I had my friends around me. I don't even remember how I learned German because I was four years old. So I went to kindergarten and probably a couple of weeks later I spoke German. So for me, it felt pretty much like a normal upbringing but I certainly from the perspective of my parents um, it was different because they first needed to work their way up you know they changed jobs quite frequently at the beginning when we came you know to find the right job and then ultimately uh, of course we settled to a certain degree but the start was certainly um, a start that you could yeah to a certain degree call it entrepreneurial so what I have done with starting my own company uh, I think my parents did you know when they were in their 30s to um, to establish themselves um, in a new country. Right. And after university, I think you went into banking, you worked at Deutsche Bank. Uh, were they, I would imagine, happy to see you in a well-paid, stable job? But perhaps uh, were your, was your family a little alarmed that you uh, opted to kind of go it alone and take the risky route of, uh, of voluntarily uh, starting from scratch with a startup? Um, no, not at all alarmed. They... Um, they certainly liked the fact that I was, you know, working with larger companies that, you know, had a good reputation, you know, that uh, were very well-known companies. But they they very much supported my decision to start something on my own. Um, at the end of the day, uh, my mom is a self-employed uh, person, so she's not employed 
by someone, but uh, she's a self-employed um, coach for figure skating. Um, so she understood that very well. And uh, I had a lot of support from everybody in the family and nobody was scared. Everybody trusted that something good uh, will eventually come out of it. Okay. Uh, well, so far it seems to be uh, going pretty well. Uh, we touched on this just uh, before about the US and, and regulators, and this is less of a specific question about US regulation and more just a general um, uh, your, to get your general take on, I guess, the mood music there. I think it was in August, the head of the SEC, Gary Gensler, described the crypto space as a, as a wild west rife with fraud, scams and abuse. Um, as someone who works on the legal uh, side of this uh, industry, what, what do you think when you hear influential and powerful people in the uh, regulatory space saying things like that? When I hear such statements, I always think it's just a very small path of a bigger truth. Um, certainly there are scams and there have been a lot of scams in the crypto space and I'm pretty certain we're going to see more scams going forward. And yes, cryptocurrencies to a certain degree are used in illicit transactions. So all of that is true. However, you need to put it into perspective and you need to see also the positive aspects that in my view are far, far bigger than these more critical and 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 illicit components of it. Um, and the same is true for every other aspect in life. Um, physical cash is still by far the best method to finance and pay for illicit transactions, but we haven't abolished physical cash and I'm not I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. Um, when we go to a bar, we have beers or we have a glass of wine um, and, and we enjoy it. At the same time, alcohol is a is a killing drug. A lot of people die every year off of alcohol because they're not drinking responsibly and they drink too much of it. And, you know, it has harmful effects on the families and, you know, um, and people around the people who abuse alcohol. Still, we don't ban alcohol altogether. Uh, we're trying to educate people um, you know, how to consume it in a responsible way. Uh, and I think the same is true for um, the crypto world. Um, and even, I'm not sure alcohol is a very good comparison. What I'm just trying to say, you know, there are things in the world that we accept and that we use. And, you know, if you overuse them, then they might not be good. And the same is true for crypto. There are illicit users. And, and you know, it's it's fair that people raise awareness for these not so good parts of crypto, but I think it's way too short-sighted to just over um, over estimate and 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 overemphasize on these aspects of it. Because if you look at the good parts of it that crypto delivers, then I think this by far outweighs the the negative aspects. And the only thing that we should do as an industry is to 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 work very hard to mitigate those not so good parts of crypto. But um, just criticizing it. In a, in a very generalized way as a whole, I don't believe um, is of any good use. Okay. Um, well, look, uh, Radka, I've just got one final question, which is the same question I ask everyone on the FNTech podcast. Uh, and the question is this, what is the weirdest or craziest thing you've ever built or done in your life? Ever built or done? Hmm. That is a, there, there are quite a few. Um, Maybe I'll give an example from um, 
from crypto. Uh, when, when I first heard about Bitcoin and I started to read about it and started to use it, back at the time, I had the belief that Bitcoin will eventually become a pretty stable currency. Um, and my prediction was when we get to a market cap of around about 30 billion, um, then um, Bitcoin will stabilize, it won't be as volatile, and we will be using it in day-to-day -day payments transactions. Of course, this hypothesis was badly wrong. Um, we're now at, I think, a trillion market cap roughly with BTC right now. Um, the volatility, volatility is slightly lower, but it's far away from being um, as low as, for example, the euro dollar. So you can't really use Bitcoin in a, you know, in a good way in day-to-day -day payments transactions. But it has found other use cases, just like, you know, Ethereum has plenty of use cases. And, you know, things developed in a way that was very hard to predict uh, a few years ago. Um, but since we thought that Bitcoin will eventually become a payment method, what we did at, uh, at Bitbond uh, together with our developers, we launched the so-called Bitcoin PPI, the Bitcoin Purchasing Power Index, which told you how many Big Macs you can buy for one BTC. Uh, um, and using the data of The Economist, um, where you get global uh, prices for Big Macs because it's a very unified uh, commodity. Um, and so we were hoping that the Bitcoin purchasing power index at some point will stabilize. Um, when it was launched um, for one Bitcoin, you could buy on average uh, 100 Big Macs. Uh, and of course, um, with the price development as it went, um, it just took off in a, in a totally crazy and unpredictable way. And looking at it fr from today's standpoint, it seems like it was a pretty outrageous idea to believe that Bitcoin is eventually going to stabilize and, and will become um, uh, not so much a digital gold replacement, but rather um, something like a stable currency that we will use in our everyday lives. So I think that's looking at it from today was a pretty crazy thing to do. At the same time, it was a lot of fun and I don't want to miss it. Okay, I think you can probably get, what, like about 20, 30,000 Big Macs now with uh, with a Bitcoin? Easy, so, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot of Big Macs. Okay, well, look, uh, we, we're out of time, so really just want to thank you, Radko Albrecht, co-founder and CEO of Bitbond. Thanks so much for joining me on the FNTech podcast. Thank you so much. I've not analysed the data in any great detail, but I think it's fair to say that most fintech founders we speak to here, or at least many of them, are former lawyers or accountants or bankers. But there also seem to be an inordinate number of athletes who either made it big or nearly did. People like Money Hub's Sam Seaton in eventing, Pollinate's Al Lukies in rugby, and now Bitbond's Radko Albrecht in figure skating. So perhaps if you want to make it big in fintech, you should ditch the MBA and head down to the track, the stables, the gym, or even the ice rink. So thank you, Radko Albrecht, and thank you for listening to the FinTech podcast with me, Elliot Gotkin, now part of the Paris FinTech Forum Communities Programme. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get updates and listen to all previous episodes via the website, www.parisfintechforum.com. If you have any comments, suggestions or feedback, you can find us on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Paris Fin Forum or at Elliot Gotkin. That's it from me. Thanks again to BPI France for sponsoring this podcast. We'll be back again next week for more of the best F in tech. Hope you'll join us again then. Bye bye.